Well, all right, if you'll take your Bible, let's turn to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll also be looking in Matthew chapter 6 a little later on. Um, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, here the Apostle Paul deals with what I believe is what I'm calling today the grip of greed, the grip of greed. Now, greed is much like pride in that nobody thinks they are greedy, right? And nobody thinks they're prideful. But Jesus um, has a litmus test, really, that um, helps us understand the depth of our greed as well as the depth of our pride. And so greed is, is very dangerous, is why we're going to talk about it. And greed is the desire to acquire that's gone haywire. <clears throat> the best way I describe greed is enough is just never enough. Doesn't matter how much you got, how much you, it's never enough. You, there's always something more. You got to have, you got to obtain, so on and so forth. Now, here's why greed is so dangerous. It was greed that caused Eve and Adam to desire and acquire a forbidden fruit. It was greed that caused Samuel's sons to um, take bribes under the table. It was greed that led Esau to sell his birthright, his blessing, to his brother Jacob. It was greed that caused the rich young ruler to come to Jesus and say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And when Jesus gave him the answer, he walked away without following Christ because of the greed in his heart. It was greed that caused a wealthy man to miss out on paradise, while Lazarus, who was a poor man, obtained paradise, not because he was poor, and the guy didn't miss it because he was wealthy, but his greed kept him from his need for Christ in his life. Greed was at the heart of Judas's betrayal of Jesus, and it was greed that had overcome a man's heart in a parable that Jesus gave about how he had all this stuff, and rather than being blessed to be a blessing, he just kept hoarding more for himself, and he built bigger and bigger barns, and then at the end of his life, when Jesus gave his assessment of his life, he said of that man, he was a fool. I don't know about you, but I don't want to have Jesus assess my life at the end of my life and say, well, Greg, you were really a fool, right? So um, greed is often in the Bible called materialism, so I'm going to use um, these two words interchangeably in this message, greed and materialism. So here's what um, Paul says about that in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now in the verses 3 through 5, he's been talking about uh, those who are false teachers who are stirring up all kinds of controversy, and the reason why they're doing this is because they're doing it for personal gain. They're, they're doing it because they're trying to get money from you, right? We don't have any of that going on our day and time, right? The Bible's so outdated. Uh, but notice what he says, at picking up in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. <clears throat> How many of us are content with that? Don't raise your hand, because I know you're lying. People who uh, want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have with wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, when you made your God, your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Jump down to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, 
nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, I want you to underline love of money. Uh, again, Paul doesn't say that money is evil. Money in and of itself is not evil, but he said the love of money is evil. He's talking about a greedy heart. He's talking about a heart that is, that is materialistic. Um, materialism or the love of money is the condition of my heart. And I put this on your outline. The condition of my heart that which I'm preoccupied with material things rather than spiritual things. In other words, what really matters to me is the acquisition of things in this life. But again, we have the John D. Rockefeller's um, philosophy that enough is just never enough. It will never be enough. Watch this. And if it's never enough, then I'm never content. And if I'm never content, I'll never be grateful for what I have. You see the slippery slope? This is what Paul is talking about in these verses when the love of money has a firm grip on your heart. Now, there are three biblical truths about money I want to just kind of jump out of the gate with. Number one is that money is powerful. And the reason why it is powerful because it does things to people. It will make them do things they never thought they would do in their lifetime. Many, many years ago, there was a movie called Indecent Proposal with Robert Redford and Demi Moore. And Demi was married and Robert Redford was a multimillionaire. And he believed that anybody could be bought, their morals could be changed if you gave them enough money. So he offered her in front of her husband a million dollars if she would spend the night with him. And that wasn't just a pajama party he had in mind, right? And so at first, you know, she's appalled, her husband's appalled, but then they got to thinking about it. I thought, well, man, life would be so much easier with a million dollars. We could do this, this, and this. And so eventually she exchanged her morals for new morals in order to gain and acquire the money. That's the power of the pull of money. Um, it, it is, listen, it corrupts the heart quicker than anything. I, I've seen so many families like just get into brawls over inheritances to the degree that people no longer talk to one another. They won't communicate with each other anymore. And, and so money just has a huge, huge pull on us. So you don't think it has a pull on you. Let me ask you a question. If I were to come to you and say, hey, every Sunday morning on your way to church, would you stop by Starbucks and pick me up an iced coffee with uh, two shots of um, half and half in that and bring that to me? And you might probably look at me and say, are you crazy? Get your own coffee. I, I'm not doing that for you. But if I added, I'm going to tell you what, if you'll do that, I'll give you $100 and you get to keep the change, which is about $2 at Starbucks. But <laughs> you would probably like, done deal. Man, I'll take that deal. How quickly did I change your perception and your actions with the pull of money? And so money is very powerful. We know that. We understand that. And it pulls us in many different directions. Number two, money is personal. I mean, I want you to turn to the person next to you and tell them how much you made last year. Somebody you don't know. Huh? Right? You're probably not going to do that, right? So you, you just don't go up to people and say, well, this is what I made last year. Unless you made a 
boatload of money, then you want to brag about it, right? Like, man, I, I, I raked in $400,000 last year. So we'll brag about that, you know, huge amount of money we may have made. But by and large, because money is so personal to us, we, we really don't want to talk about it. And the, the, the bad side of that is, is that when people get themselves in financial problems, it's very difficult for them to go to somebody and talk about it. Because it's so personal to you, right? It's like, ah, oh, I feel like a failure. I feel like I haven't done the right things. And, and, you know, I, I, and so it's hard for them to come clean and say, you know, this is the mess I'm in. Uh, I'm not sure how I got here. Can you help me out? The third thing about money is money has potential. It has the potential for bad and good. You know, again, money is amoral. It's, it's neither bad or good. It has potential both ways. It holds the most potential, though, in our lives to become, for us, a God substitute. And so materialism is not a money or possession issue, as we're going to see with what Paul says and what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Jesus just put it, I mean, Paul quotes here towards the end of, uh, in verses 18, right out of what Jesus said about money. Jesus said, listen, money is a heart issue. And if it's a heart issue, it means it's a spiritual issue. And so Jesus said the litmus test, the barometer of where your heart is, is your view and how you handle your, your money. And because possessions are a heart issue, that means debt is a heart issue. Out of control spending is a heart issue. Uh, credit card debt is a heart issue. And it's why Jesus says when your heart is controlled by money rather than God, you'll be, begin serving it rather than the Lord. In other words, your needs will supersede God's kingdom. You, you want to meet your needs first, and then if I have leftovers, I'll give that to God's kingdom. Jesus flip-flopped that in Matthew chapter 6. In fact, what he said was, one of the reasons why your needs are being met is because you're thinking of yourself first rather than the kingdom of God. So, oh, you're making that up. Well, no, I'm not. I'm going to prove to you in a minute. But uh, let me just say that, uh, you know, Jesus says where your treasure is, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Show me your treasure and I'll show you where your heart is. And so he went on to say, no one serves two masters. Either you hate one, love the other. You're devoted to one, despise the other one. You cannot serve both God and money. And that's why this is such an important issue as far as God is concerned. Because one of the leading competitors that God has for our hearts is our stuff. And we will put that heads and above, you know, heads above him if we are not careful. And so when Jesus taught us how to pray, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a prayer of surrender. That is a prayer that says, okay, God, I, I want your kingdom to come. I want, I want your kingdom displayed here on earth as it is in heaven. Therefore, I'm surrendering my heart, my life, my everything to your will, to your kingdom first so that your will and kingdom purposes will be done here on earth as they are in heaven. How does God display his kingdom here on earth? He supplies what we need to be the ones who display it. And so generosity was very, very important to God. It was very, very important to Jesus. 
And the Bible speaks a lot about helping the poor. And the reason is because we are, to be, we are blessed to be generous. And so you know you've fallen into the trap of materialism, though, when you always need more. You always need to buy something. You're never content with what you have. And so imagine what life would be like being free from that. And this is what Paul is talking about. Let's free ourselves up from that so that we understand why God gave us things, how we are to leverage them for his kingdom purposes, but it's not just for his kingdom purposes. Paul also said in verse 17 that God has richly provided us with things for our enjoyment. Yes, we are to enjoy the things that God has given to us. We are to be grateful for the things that God has given to me, but I cannot be grateful if I'm never content with where I'm at. If I'm always discontent, then I will, that discontentment will always spell itself out through ingratitude. So here's what I put on the bottom line is, and this is fleshed out in the outline, materialism is not defeated by being removed, but by being replaced. So you're going to notice in this outline, these four points, I'm asking you to replace something, and then I'm going to give you an action step that says, here's the first step to seeing this happen. Remember? you got to look at the false narrative and Jesus' narrative, because this is a mind game, right? This is, this is where the battle takes place. You have to replace the false narrative with Jesus' truth narrative. You need a spiritual activity or discipline to put into practice so you begin living that out, and it's best done in community through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how we experience change in life. So... That's why people can sit in church for years and hear hundreds and hundreds of messages and nothing ever changes. They're still the same as they were the day they walked into church. Listen, you have to put something, you have to replace something, right? You replace it. That's how you experience change. So here's number one. Principle number one is you remove discontentment by replacing it with contentment, all right? This is what materialism does to your life. It robs you of the joy of enough. Discontentment says that it's never enough. Contentment says, I'm joyful in what I have. It's enough. If I don't get another thing, it's enough. What, what did Paul say? I mean, if I've got food and clothing, I ought to be content in that alone. But how content are we really just food and, and clothing. And so to beat the grip of greed, you have to learn how to become content. You have to learn to be okay with not getting everything you want. I remember as a child, I had a bike, you know, and I, I, I mowed lawns and I bought my own bike and, and it, was, it was a stingray and I had the Tony Tiger hand grips on it and uh, the banana seed. And I mean, I had this thing all decked out. I thought my bike was the best thing in the entire neighborhood until my neighbor got a bike for Christmas. It was a brand new cherry red Schwinn with three on the column, had shocks in it and everything else. Now all of a sudden, I'm no longer content with my bike because he's got a better bike. You see how this works. And by the way, that doesn't go up, go away when we grow up. We're very content with our car until somebody brings along a shinier car with more gizmos and gadgets, and then all of a sudden we are discontent with what we have, and we want what they have, and therefore we're never satisfied with where we are. And so discontentment is always, watch this, it is always fueled by comparison. 
And we tend to compare up, not down. All right? When Paul says, well, if you got food and clothing, you ought to be content in that. You know that there are uh, half the world's population don't even have that. We're talking about three and a half billion people. If you live in the United States, you make $25,000 a year, you already have an income that surpasses over half of the world's population. If you have a house and a car and an income of $50,000, you have just now climbed into the 20 percentile of wealth in the entire world. But ask the average American if they're wealthy. Well, no, I'm not wealthy. Well, why aren't you not wealthy? Well, but I don't have everything I want. There's so much more I need. And so the question becomes then, what, when is enough enough? How many cars do I have to have? How big does my house have to be? How many things do I have to possess before I ever get to that level of contentment that says, okay, what I have, I'm, I'm going to be content with this. If God doesn't give me another thing, it doesn't matter. I am, I'm absolutely content with where I'm at. You see, if I can't get there, then I'm constantly discontented. And I'm constantly discontented. Why? Because I'm always comparing myself with somebody who has more than I do. We never sit down and be in, in gratitude and say, God, you have so blessed me. I, I, I'm so incredibly blessed when I think about people around the world who, who, you know, sometimes only eat one meal a day or every other day or even further away, you know, apart than that. So this is where God challenges us and it's where the Apostle Paul challenges us because you know, um, financially, uh, we compare ourselves in a lot of different ways. We compare ourselves with jobs and, and office space and, you know, what your title is and financially. And so to keep us from gratitude, this comparison, uh, it keeps our eyes, watch this, it keeps our eyes off of people who are under-resourced. There, there are two um, great needs in our neighborhoods, our country, and our world. There are urgent spiritual needs and there are urgent physical needs. But if I'm never content with what I have, I'll never see myself as the means by which I'm to be used of God for his kingdom purposes in meeting those needs. A lot of people say, well, you know, I wish I could give that pastor, but I, you know, I just don't, I, I can't even make ends meet. I'm, I, I, I barely have enough to get by and so on and so forth. And um, I'm thinking, really? Um, you couldn't even give $5, right? You couldn't, you couldn't even loosen up a little. Well, you know, times are tough. See, enough's never enough. It's like, when do I get to the threshold where I says, okay, I have enough. I, I, now I'm going to use my excess to, to help out in those who are in need around me. I will, I will turn a blind eye to the physical needs of others. And it, it, it's okay to be successful. It's okay to make a lot of money. What is wrong is feeling that you never have enough and you're always wanting more. It can... It, it creates this sense of envy and competition and arrogance that is driven by pride. Here's what Ecclesiastes 5.10 says. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Notice what Paul called this in verse 9. A trap. He says this is a trap. Materialism is a trap. Notice the other words that he uses. It's trap. It's foolish. It's harmful. It plunges you it, to ruin. It's destructive. It brings all kinds of evil over what? Money. Most people think if I only had, if I only made a little bit more money than I'm making now, it would fix all of my problems. No, it wouldn't. 
And here's why. Because if you've never reached a level of contentment, you know what we do as Americans? We just ratchet up our lifestyle. We just buy bigger houses, more cars, better cars, more expensive cars, more things. And listen, there's nothing wrong with if you possess things. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about possessing. I have a house. I have cars. I, I get all of that. But the question is, have I ever reached a level of contentment where I say, you know what? Enough's enough. If God blesses me with more, great. But at some point, I want to start leveraging that stuff in other ways other than on myself or on my own family alone, right? So this is where, where Paul's taking. What did he say? He says, command them to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to, to share. And so at the root, it's more than a lifestyle problem. It's a heart issue and it makes it a spiritual issue because we suffer from the illness of what I call the next thing. It's always the next thing. When I get the next thing, I'll be content. When I get that next thing, I'll be content. When I get that next thing, I'll be content. That'll do it for me. That'll bring satisfaction. That'll bring contentment. But it never does. Do you know what discontentment driven by comparison with a heart full of materialism gets you? Living paycheck to paycheck and a lot of debt. You know what that brings into your life? A lot of stress, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fighting among couples. Money issues are one of the leading causes of divorce because if there's no financial margin in your life and you're under the constant strain and stress of debt over, you know, overtaking your life, then all, all of a sudden you can't get away from it. It's with you 24-7 and now all of a sudden the stress and the strain of it all begins to just kind of tumble down on top of you. Now, I will say this, um, you know, when you have children, all right, there are very, all right, your life has seasons. You know, when Mara and I first got married, we had like zip, <laughs> zero. Uh, we were living on love and, uh, you know, I, we weren't married very long and then we're both in college together and then we're in school for many years and, and then children come along and when children come along, they suck you dry, man. They, 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 they use a lot of your funds, right? So it's, it's hard to get more financial margin when you have kids and you're trying to provide for them and they're expensive to have. And, and so, but now, you know, like, you know, our, our children, are out of the house. They're married. We have grandkids. Yes, we splurge on some on our grandkids, but we have now more financial margin than we've ever had because that's the season that we're in. And so I just want to be an encourager to you. If you don't have a lot of financial margin right now, you're a young family, you have children, I get that. God understands that, but it doesn't mean that materialism has to have a grip on your life. That contentment needs to be there if you're ever going to... Um, move into the place uh, of, um, of feeling the joy of God in the area of your, your finances. Listen, um, but as long as you keep comparing yourself to somebody else, you'll, you'll never be content. Well, that family has so much more than I, and I, I wish I had that, and I wish that I had that, and God, I don't understand why I don't have that. And you know, it's what Paul said in verse 6. He says, contentment is great gain. Contentment is more valuable than the things you acquire because of your discontentment, which brings alongside a lot of collateral damage. And so what did Paul say? Look in verses 11, 12. Look at the words he used. Flee, pursue, fight. Those are proactive words. Because here's, here's what we think. If I feed my appetite of never enough, at some point it's going to be enough. The exact opposite is true. 
If you keep feeding an appetite, guess what? Your appetite grows. If you want to kill an appetite, you've got to starve it. And so there has to be a point in your life where you say, I'm, I'm, I'm choosing by an act of my will to be content with what I have. It doesn't mean you don't strive for more. It doesn't mean that you don't get pay raises and you try to invest wisely. And all, the Bible talks about all of that stuff. It's just that, can I be content here? And if I get more, I'll be content there. But I'm, my contentment level is not hinged upon whether or not I get everything that I desire. Probably not going to happen. Hebrews 13, 5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God said, never will I leave you, nor will I forsake you. Money is an amplifier. It's not a transformer. Money does not transform your life. It simply amplifies what's already there. Money doesn't make you into a different person, just more of who you are. If you're a happy person, money isn't going to make you happier. You'll be happy. If you're a miserable person, money isn't going to make you less miserable. You'll still be miserable. So here's your action step. If you want to learn this principle, removing discontentment, replacing it with contentment, you have to learn the, the, the act of what I call admire without the need to acquire. Admire without the need to acquire. If you see a person with more stuff than you, you, or nicer stuff, you don't have to be discontent. And so the answer to contentment is gratitude, right? I'm grateful for what I have. And when Marlon and I were in school and I worked for Bass Brothers, I mean, these are among the top 10 wealthiest men in the world. And, you know, I'd have to go to their homes and I'd see these homes, you know, like 14,000 square feet homes with all, you know, art galleries and drove Mercedes and all this stuff. And, I'm, you know, if you're not careful, you, you're like your heart's like, oh, I'll never be satisfied. Here I am a struggling, college, you know, seminary student and, and they have so much and it's just not fair. And why is it that way? And so on and so forth. It, listen. I, but I learned how to admire their stuff without needing to acquire it. I like driving their Mercedes to the, to the airports and to their homes. And I liked it when their wives gave me a bill of $100 bills that big around. Or their husbands gave them to me to take to their wives because they were going on a spending spree. I, you know, I thought it was pretty cool as I was carrying around all that money. I, I, can, I can admire a lot of things that the wealthy people have. I love going to, you know, country clubs and playing on their golf courses. I don't have to pay that exorbitant price for a country club fee. I can, I can you know, as play and be just as content not having a membership there. And so if you're ever going to bring your heart to a place of contentment, you have to be able to get to the place where you can admire what others have. But you don't have to feel the need to acquire that in order to find contentment in your life. That is a rat race. You'll never win. There's always somebody that's got nicer stuff, better stuff, bigger stuff. Number two, you remove instant gratification by replacing it with gratitude. Replace instant gratification with gratitude. The discipline and the greatest enemy of discipline isn't, is instant gratification right? I got to have it now. So many young married couples get into trouble because they think they have to have everything now that their parents worked their entire lives to get. And so they jump into all kinds of debt and all kinds of financial situations. And then all of a sudden, you know, that indebtedness now begins to weigh down on them. 
And so it creates no financial margin, which means now there's fighting and bickering and the pressure of jobs and, and so on and so forth. See, discipline says, I, I need to be in better shape, so I'm going to go to the gym, I'm going to eat healthier, I'm make sure I get more rest. Instant gratification says, but man, those fries, that triple chocolate cake is just like calling my name. Deep fried Twinkies. That's, that's like manna from heaven right there, deep fried t- Twinkies. If you don't believe me, go to Ohio State Fair. You got to get my steak on the stick. I got to get my um, Swiss cheese sandwich and my di- deep fried Twinkies. That was pre-diabetes. Uh, pre, um, Can't do that anymore. Discipline says, I- I'm going to marry the best person that God has planned for me to marry. Instant gratification says, but I feel so lonely, so I'm just going to take the next person who comes along. Discipline says, I want to get out of debt and start saving and bidding into tithe. And instant gratification says, but I need that new purse and that new car and that vacation. I know I can't afford these things, but I'm going to do it anyways. Instant gratification says, enjoy life as much as you can, even though you cannot afford it. Discipline says, no to instant gratification now so that you can say yes to blessing and opportunities later. My point is, I just don't want you to fall into instant gratification. It is the number one cause of debt. And debt can be overwhelming. Now, the Bible doesn't say you can't have any debt, but you got to be wise about debt and what kind of pressure it's putting on you and on your family. So what does it mean to live in discipline? It simply means to live within your means and create financial margin. Live within your means and create financial margin. Listen, if I'm discontent, I'm constantly comparing myself to my neighbor They've got all the new shiny stuff, you know, the motorcycle, the cars, and all the stuff, and I want to keep up with the Joneses, and, and even though I can't, no, I can't afford that, regardless of how much they've financed, how much debt they're in, and so instant gratification says, well, I got to have those things too, so I'm going to incur all this debt so I can, you know, keep up with the Joneses and impress people I don't even like, uh, and, and I do that. That's instant gratification, which means there's, I'm not living within my means, I'm not creating financial margin, and therefore... Um, I'm not being disciplined in the area of spending. For give you an example, you know, I went on a motorcycle trip a couple weeks ago with a bunch of guys. There was 13 of us. Everybody had a Harley except me. And so um, I'm like, man, I've always wanted a Harley, but I never felt like I could afford one. So um, when we came back, they said, hey, we got a guy in our church. He's got a Harley. Um, I forget, it's 2009. Here's what he's asking for. It's a really good price. He's been one owner. He's taking really good care of it. He's just gotten to the age now he can't ride anymore. And I thought, I told my wife, I said, man, I got the horror that I'm going to look at when I get home. <laughs> and so I even told Dennis about it. I said, man, I think, I, I think I'm going to sell my bike and buy that horror. But see, if I'm going to buy the horror, I'm going to have to pay cash for it, right? And I'm not going to finance it. So I'm thinking, yeah, I could do that. But so instant gratification would have said, I'm going to go look at that thing. I'm going to, I'm going to buy it, and, right? But my, my rational side says, well, how about, we, how about we sift this through the Lord first? And so the Lord's like, mm, probably not a good idea right now. That may happen later on, but right now, probably not a good step for you. So the question is, can I, can I follow what the Lord's will is, or am I going to just dive in there? So here's your action step, is, is you have to live on a budget. Now, a discipline of all smart people is they know how much they make and they know where their money goes, <laughs> okay, rather than wondering where it went. 
It's a disciplined habit. Materialism has nothing to do with how much you make, whether a little or a lot. Materialism has everything to do with how you spend what you make. The average person thinks that the only way to gain financial freedom is to earn more money or win the lottery or hope Aunt Betsy dies and you get a big inheritance. That may never happen. Here's what every rich person knows. You spend less than you make. And then you learn to invest wisely. Do you know that in America, only 8% of all millionaires inherited 50% or more of their wealth? That 61% of today's new millionaires never received any money or any inheritance from anyone. But they learned how to live below their means and invest wisely or to come up with a creative idea uh, of, of a business that was going to make them a lot of money. And how many of us typically spend more than we earn and how do we cover the gap? Well, people cover the gap through a lot of things, credit cards and uh, deplete their savings. They go to payday loan places, 401k withdrawals. I know somebody withdrew money for their 401k to go out and buy a car. Are you kidding me? It's the most, de- that depreciates faster than anything. Why would you take an asset you have set up for later that's making you money and spend it on something that's going to depreciate in the next couple of years? At a rapid rate, not a wise financial move, right? So spending less than you make is what creates financial margin. Now, here's what Dave Ramsey would teach. And some of you have been through, you know, um, his material before. And it's, it's very, uh, it's wise, but it's about, it's all about discipline with your finances. So I don't know if he teaches the 80-20 principle. I'm, I'm more of guys like the 70-10-10-10 principle. 70 10 10 10 principle simply says this the first 10% of my income goes to the Lord. He gets the first fruits, right? It's called the tithe. And then the next 10% goes towards any debt reduction you need to make. If you're, you're, you're paying down a house or a car or whatever it is, the next 10% goes in your savings. You learn how to, say, to live on the 70%. Now, if you, if you discipline yourself to do that, it may be hard for you now. But it will make life so much easier for you later. So it's that instant gratification versus discipline. Right? There are, there's an, a, an alarming number of Americans, because I'm part of the baby boom generation, who are moving into retirement who have, have, they are way off in having money set aside for retirement. And now they're, they're forced to live on Social Security alone. That, that's a horrible prospect, given the government and how they can take your Social Security money and do whatever they want with it. And so the Bible says, there's a replete with saying, look, don't spend everything you have now. Discipline yourself to set money aside for a day. Because, you know, if, if you set money aside in your savings, guess what happens to every American? Your cars break down. You got to have new clothes, repairs on your house unexpected medical bills, all of those things happen. And rather than wondering where that money's coming from, if you have it set aside, it's not going to put that financial stress and strain. Again, I understand and for some of you, you have small kids and limited income. And maybe you're you know, on one income in your family. That would be a stretch for you. But you need to come up with some plan that's going to help you in preparing for the here and now as well as for the future it starts with being content, and then it moves into being grateful for what you have and learning to live within your means and setting up financial margin, which gives you what? Freedom. 
freedom. Those who've gone through Dave Ramsey's stuff and have gotten out of debt, it's amazing how the, the verse forwards out of their mouth is always, we just feel so free. My daughter's one of them. Her and her husband just said a few years back, they say, we're getting out of debt. We're getting completely out of debt. And they did. They, they hunkered down and they had student loans and all that stuff. And they, they scraped and they did everything. They sold stuff and, and, but, and they got out of debt and it's just so freeing for them. Number three, you remove greed by replacing it with generosity. Generosity is the antidote to materialism. You find this all through the Bible. Psalm 37, 21 says, The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. Why? Because God's generous. Jesus says the generosity is the key to opening up the door to God's blessing. Acts 20, 35, Jesus says, More blessed if I spend time and energy on how to give rather than on how to receive. You know, I know a dentist who, who provides free dental care for all pastors and their families. Last year alone, he did $700,000 of free dental work. So his CPA said, you can't keep doing that. And he said, why not? He says, you can't afford to keep doing that. He said, this is what the Lord told me to do, and therefore I will follow what the Lord tells me to do. And I'm telling you, he's not hurting because of what he does. See, this, this is the, 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 the man, general, you can't outgive God. It's just impossible. Proverbs 22, 9 says, generous man will himself be blessed for he shares his food with the poor. And so we look for ways to give. Here's your action step is to commit to being a sacrificial giver. A sacrificial giver. We look for ways, you know, again, Paul says in verse 17, um, command those who are rich, present world, not be here, but the, put the, or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Yes, God provides you for our enjoyment, but the reason why God so blessed us is not just for our enjoyment, is so that we can be a blessing to others. Now, some of you are sporadic givers, that as you see a need and you might meet that, now like a homeless person, you give them a couple bucks or maybe you buy them a meal or whatever. Some of you are strategic givers, that's better, uh, in that you strategically look for ways to... Um, Create margin in your finances so you can leverage the excess to help other people, right? You, you tithe, you give God his, what's his, you save, but you also look for opportunities to leverage God's, your money for God's kingdom purposes. And some of you have gotten to the sacrificial level. You know you've gotten to the sacrificial level when you are willing to make a lifestyle change in order to free up more money to use in God's kingdom. Whether you're supporting missionaries or you're helping people who are, who are poor, or you're giving to, there's a thousand different things you can give to in order to help those and to leverage and advance God's kingdom here on earth. And so you don't toss everything to the wind and have nothing, but you are generous. And generosity is not dependent upon your finances. It is an issue of, it is an issue of the heart. You know, you, you can be, for some of you, like, it's like the, the widow's might, right? Jesus is at the temple. He's watching the offering. A widow comes up, and she gives, like, a couple of pennies. And they, there are people who have given a lot more than she is. But Jesus says, no one is given like her because she gave, not out of her ac excess, she gave out of her poverty. She gave everything she had. She laid it all on the line. They use her as an example to all of us. Are you willing to make s sacrifices in your own livelihood in order to help others, 
So leverage your finances for kingdom purposes. Number four, you remove your limited earthly perspective by replacing it with, with God's eternal perspective. What is God's eternal perspective? So let's go back to Jesus' prayer. I get five minutes. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. And so his perspective is he begins with God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Now notice what came before me talking about my needs. God and kingdom. Then my needs. Now most of us don't have to pray, give us this day our daily bread because you got enough bread to last you for a lifetime, right? Or some of you might want to translate that and say, and give this, this, me this day my you know, nacho cheese Doritos or my Twinkies or whatever you want to fill in the blank with. Because we are so blessed. God has so blessed us as Americans. And we, we, there's food in our cabinets. There's water at will. And there, there is, I mean, we have an abundance of stuff. And we're so, so divinely blessed by the Lord. And, and so, but what Jesus wants us to do is to help us put things in perspective. That's what heaven is all about. It's about gaining a new perspective. So on the top of your outline, I just want you to put a little, a little dot on that outline and draw a line this way and put an arrow at the end of it. It's what I call the dot in the line. You've heard this before. I've, I've shared this before. Others have used it before. That dot represents your life here on earth. The line represents eternity. Your life here on earth might be 60 to 90 years long. I don't know. It might be less than that. But the line for eternity goes on for how long? Eternity. And so what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and, you know, and, and rust can destroy it and thieves can steal it. He says, no. He says, spend your time not living just for the dot, but to live for the line. He says, now leverage your kingdom resources for kingdom purposes. I'm paraphrasing him. For kingdom purposes, he says, because otherwise your heart is going to be, what? Focused on this world and not on the kingdom. That's why I said you can't serve both God and mammon. You can't, you'll, you'll despise one and love the other. You, you can't do both. He says, put your focus in the right area. Yes, you, we live in the dot and God blesses us with so much for our enjoyment, but we need to leverage what God gives us for kingdom purposes first. That's why Jesus went on to say in Matthew chapter 6, stop worrying about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, your clothing, your housing. What did he say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be added unto you. What he said is, if you'll honor God first and foremost and be generous and have your heart set on God's kingdom, Everything you'll ever need in life, God will supply you with. You'll never be lacking. You see, we flip-flop that. We focus on ourselves first and give God what's left over. And if you want to know how God feels about leftovers, go to the book of Malachi because he spells it out very clearly. Why would you ever treat me this way? I have given you everything. Everything. And now you treat me in return by giving me 
what's left over. And so your action step is don't trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. You see, Jesus understood that the number one competitor in our hearts when it comes to our relationship with God is our stuff. Because the materialistic heart says it's just never enough. Therefore, I'm never content. I'm always discontent. Therefore, I'm never grateful. My content, discontentment is spelled out through my ingratitude. And therefore, I give God what's left over. God doesn't want us to catch a vision of getting. He wants us to catch a vision of giving, to be generous, to be like him who gave it all. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you, you would do a work in our hearts um, that would make us more generous and that we would seek first your kingdom. And that, God, we would leverage everything that you have blessed us with, everything you have given to us, so that your will might be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we know, deep in our hearts, that you're not going to allow your number one competitor our stuff to take your place you're never going to allow those things to bring us peace and joy and contentment and satisfaction when we allow that to compete against you because you are the author the provider of all of those things so forgive us for setting settling for Satan's cheap imitation. Forgive us for being driven by the things of this world. God, we pray for transformation of our hearts today. I pray that you would enable us to be faithful with little. God, our greatest desire is that you would trust us with true riches, that you would help us to pass the test so that you, you can trust us with all that you desire to entrust in us. You said those who are faithful with the little things will be made faithful over greater things. And God, we want to be faithful in the little things so that we can be faithful in the greater things. That we can be used as channels of your blessing, knowing that everything we possess really belongs to you. We're merely stewards of it. God, what, what do you want us to do with what belongs to you? We thank you for all the many blessings that we experience. We are so, so um, indebted to you, but yet grateful and hopeful and joyful that you've entrusted into our care these blessings of life. Again, I pray that we will all just like stand in the offering plate <laughs> offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto you, that we would be channels of the Holy Spirit, bringing your divine resources from heaven to earth 
and that you would channel those resources through us to the needs, the urgent needs that are out in front of us, the physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs. God, there are just so many needs and you have equipped us, you have blessed us with everything we need to meet the needs that you're going to bring across our pathway. So make us wise, give us eyes with which to see what the Spirit sees, ears with which to hear what the Spirit speaks. And when the Spirit says move, when the Spirit says give, when the Spirit says get involved, when the Spirit says serve, that Lord, we would be ready to step out in obedience. Because you are faithful and you are true. love you and we long for you in your presence in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.